This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Okay, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, uh, Dr. Grandner. Got his PhD from the Joint Doctoral Program at SFSU and UCSD, and where he worked with the sleep researcher Daniel Kripke. Um, then he did his clinical internship at San Diego VA and a postdoc at University of Pennsylvania. He's been examining the behavioral and contextual determinants of sleep, and this has led him to try to understand the social context, racial and socioeconomic disparities. So when we planned this symposium, we were looking for a speaker to address the larger social context and the differential vulnerability to uh, short sleep. And so we found him. He's the perfect, this is his niche. He's the perfect bookend, serving as the perfect bookend to our symposium. Thank you so much for coming. All right. Thank you guys for staying awake, those of you that are. Um, the good thing is, since I get to go at the end, I don't get to, I don't have to present all the great data. So the, the talk from Dr. O'Han, Dr. Van Cotter, Dr. Redline, Dr. Youngstead, Dr. Dahl, all presented some really, really great data about sleep and, obes- and obesity and potential pathways. And I'm not going to present a lot of that because it was done much better than I could. Um, but let me talk a little bit about the importance of sleep. Um, though I don't need to convince most of the people in here. Sleep is a lot like diet. So it represents a biological imperative that's based on both quantity and quality. So we need a certain amount of certain quality. And we meet those needs by engaging in behaviors, right? And these behaviors are largely driven by genetics and intrapersonal factors. So for example... If we took sleep diaries of everyone in this room, they would not be randomly distributed across the day. Um, There's a reason that we sleep at night, and a lot of those are biological. But the behaviors that we engage in to meet these uh, biological needs are socially constructed, influenced by the environment, and are dictated by societal norms. And that becomes very important when we're talking about differences in sleep attainment being important for health. So a little bit, um, to to rehash a little bit of the background, uh, we know from over 40 studies spanning over 40 years that people who report short uh, or long sleep don't live as long as people who report about seven to eight hours. This is just data from the largest of those studies that was ever done. This was data collected about 20 years ago, published about 10 years ago, 
uh, by Kripke and colleagues of over a million U.S. adults on the uh, y-axis you have uh, ha- the, the mortality hazard ratio relative to seven hours. You see men and women, as you deviate from seven hours, mortality risk goes up. And this pattern is generally seen uh, across studies, across continents, across cohorts. So here's a box. Uh, a lot of people might put sleep deficiency in the box. I'm still not quite sold on sleep deficiency, so I'm a little wordier here. So I've got insufficient or excessive sleep duration and or inadequate sleep quality. Often they go together, leading to something which uh, leads to mortality. So the question is, what is that? So the most obvious answer, you have some, some adverse health outcomes of poor sleep that is leading to mortality. So what are these adverse health outcomes? So I would uh, purport that, that here pretty well summarizes what we know about potential adverse outcomes um, associated with sleep. I highlight obesity and waking because that's the, the main reason we're here. And also notice each of these boxes, they're not separate boxes with arrows. They're all within one big box because if I had to draw all the arrows in terms of how all these things connect with each other, we'd have an arrow salad. Um, but so the point is that sleep is associated with these outcomes uh, that are important for cardiometabolic disease. So you have sleep duration and sleep disturbance. So here's some data from um, the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System conducted for, by the CDC. They asked a question, a very, very vague question about sleep disturbance, where uh, how many nights have you had difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or sleeping too much, any kind of sleep problem. Uh, dichotomized across people who had it uh, three nights a week or more. Um, and this was dichotomized, as a statistical note, Many of you may be thinking, why dichotomize a continuous variable? Here, this was the distribution. You had peaks at both ends, so we dichotomized. So three days a week or more, were they more likely to have uh, these outcomes? And yes. So people who reported poor sleep were more likely to be obese, more likely to have diabetes, more likely to have a history of heart disease. And I'm showing the unadjusted and the adjusted to show what happens when we throw these things into the model, the typical covariates and maybe a few other ones. Um, and then a little bit about sleep duration. We saw especially from um, a number of the other talks earlier, Dr. Dr. Redline, Dr. Van Cotter, Dr. Youngstead, especially looking at the population. This is data from NHANES, uh, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, another nationally representative U.S.-based sample, um, looking at the relationship between habitual sleep duration relative to seven hours and risk of obesity, having diabetes, um, hypertension, high cholesterol. You'll notice that um, I have broken apart the very short and the very long, separate from what we would normally consider some of the short and long, showing that these groups are really, really seem categorically different. And a lot of these studies that might show inconclusive results might have to do with lumping these heterogeneous groups together. Um, notice there's a whole lot of covariates. So this was adjusted for a whole lot of potential covariates, including insufficient sleep. So there was a, an item of uh, about how often do you feel you don't get enough sleep. So this was the effect of short sleep over and above um, perceived insufficiency, whatever variance that could have explained. And notice over high cholesterol, I don't know if you can see it too well in here, the asterisks are green. That was to remind me that these relationships were significant before introducing insufficient sleep, but once you put insufficient sleep in, that relationship actually does become non-significant. So that's the one that was completely accounted for by insufficient sleep. The other ones were not. 
Um, we're here talking about weight and obesity. So here is, there's been a number of studies. There's a review paper that just came out by uh, McGee and Hale in Sleep Medicine Reviews looking at all the different studies out there on sleep duration and incident um, weight gain and obesity. So here is some data from a study in sleep a couple of years ago from a Japanese group. Following non-obese people over a year, who is more likely to become obese? in that year. And so this is showing the short sleepers and very short sleepers were more likely to become obese in that year than the people who were not. Um, though you can see the beginnings of kind of a J shape here, but the other groups were not significant. Um, so why might this be the case? So here's some data we, we presented at APSS this year, the papers in submission right now, looking at um, inflammation as a potential pathway. So do short and long sleepers have increased inflammation? So here's some unadjusted and then adjusted data, also from NHANES, looking at sleep duration categories and CRP, which is an important inflammatory marker. Um, and you can see, after adjusting for all of these typical covariates, and a couple of new ones, that you do have elevations in short and long sleep. And you actually, we plotted um, uh, squared terms to actually show a significant U-shape. And I also do want to note that we included in here variables that could potentially account for insomnia and sleep apnea. So a lot of these population studies looking at sleep duration are probably confounded by lots of undiagnosed sleep disorders. So we tried to account for at least some of that variance in there. And so even, even still, we do have uh, elevations there. So there have been a number of other studies that have looked at this as a potential pathway. Um, sleep restriction in the laboratory has shown elevation to TNF-alpha IL-6. Um, short sleep duration in the population, so this is a little more relevant to the general population sort of stuff we're talking about. Uh, we've seen some elevations and some with long sleep duration as well. And they're, they're more still coming out. So it looks like there's a U-shaped relationship in risk. So we've got poor sleep leads to these adverse health outcomes. So if normal variance in sleep and the sleep of, of you and me and, and, and the general population is associated with adverse health, which is associated with weight gain and obesity and, and cardiometabolic risk, we're talking about how do we intervene on it? So developing an intervention will have to be in more of a health behavior intervention. And in order to do that sort of uh, intervention, you have to know what's on the other side of the arrow. And the sleep field has, has notoriously tended to forget that side, not because it's, it's not interesting, but uh, the other side has, has tended to be a little more interesting. But now we're thinking about, well, what, what do we need to change? What's the context of sleep? So here was a quote I found that I, that I think puts it very well. Um, you know, we tend to think of sleep as a biological and, uh, and scientific term, but, you know, we've got to remember that when we sleep, where we sleep, and with whom we sleep are all important markers or indicators of social status, prestige, and prevailing power relations. And just for a quick second, think about how this applies to you. Think about how, when, and where you sleep, and how that might uh, be related to your social status and where you came from and who you are, not just your biology. You know, what kind of bed do you sleep on and what is your room like? How noisy is it? So and I was talking a little bit about disparities. So we're talking about future directions and implications. So what's a disparity? Well, one of the major goals of health and human services is to eliminate health disparities. But So this includes NIH and CDC. So we're talking about funding. This is something that they care about. 
But what does that mean? What's the difference between a difference and a disparity? So, differences and disparities are both scientifically interesting, not saying one is better than the other, but a disparity is social and environmental in nature, not purely biological. It represents an injustice or inequality and is therefore ameliorable. So it's not about a a genetic difference between two different groups of people. So here's some examples if you're you're trying to think about, well, where might a disparity be relevant? So why are minorities less likely to receive preventive care? Is this a biological reason or a social reason? Why do low-income individuals, irrespective of race, have higher mortality, even in the case of universal health care access? Why do minority-serving VA hospitals, this is data that just came out in, in neurology, why do minority-serving VA hospitals perform fewer carotid artery imaging start studies, even whether you're a minority or not? If you go to a minority-serving VA hospital, you're less likely to get this di- uh, diagnostic test. Why do black men have a shorter life expectancy than white men? And why is this backwards in prison? Why are black women diagnosed with breast cancer less likely than white women to survive five years after diagnosis? And why is it that even though Hispanic women are 40% less likely than white women to develop breast cancer, breast cancer is still the leading cause of cancer death in Hispanic women? Are these biological reasons or are there there social uh, and uh, environmental factors involved here? There's one more. And why is it that people from low-income neighborhoods are less likely to get angiography, irrespective of race also? So here we got our model. We got it squished on the bottom here. Um, so then what's on this level? So we have individual level variables. So we're building a social ecological model. I don't know if, if how many people in here are familiar with social ecologic models. But so you have an individual, their, their behavior, their genetics, their environment um, that leads to how they sleep. But this person is embedded uh, in a social context. So these are all factors that affect the variables on the individual level. Their religion, their culture, their neighborhood, their social networks. And I particularly highlighted work and or school and family and home that not only bridge the individual to the social level but also interact with each other. These are all factors important for determining how a person sleeps. And again, this is embedded in a societal level. We have public policy, globalization, thinking like this is pretty obtuse, this is pretty vague, this is, this is hard to hard to, to wrap our head around. We're focusing on, you know, within the cell membrane kinds of studies. Now we're thinking about society, but this is where things like 24-7 society come from. Advances in technology. Ten years ago, you know, we didn't have a problem of kids going to bed with their cell phones. Now we do. Um, and this is something that changes behavior on the individual level that we need to be thinking about. And of course, sleep isn't the only pathway to these things, and I have this arrow in here to remind me of that. So what do we know about sleep disturbance and, and, and race? So th- there's a lot of conflicting data out, out there. Here's some more data from that uh, BRFSS from the CDC showing that relative to white adults, so this is uh, male and female, this is also adjusted for age, sex, race, and a number of socio-demographic and socioeconomic variables, um, if you are, for women, if you're black, African-American, or Hispanic, Latino, or Asian, you reported fewer sleep complaints than white women. If you were multiracial, you reported more. There were very few differences among men, uh, particularly Asian reporting less. But, you know, all of these data that I'm going to be presenting and that you're going to read anywhere, you should be asking yourself about the, the questions that were asked. The value of these, of these population studies, you have great power, you have uh, great generalizability, but the measures are often not good. I mean, it would surprise most people to know 
We have no nationally representative data on sleep using any validated or standard sleep measure, even subjective and retrospective, at least that I know of. So we're using these survey items. So on the NHANES, they had a, a survey question, how, much, how long does it take you to fall asleep? And a very non-judgmental question. There's no right or wrong answer. Um, then we dichotomized it by 30 minutes. This is usually the cutoff for insomnia. And we found that relative to white, if you were black or African-American, that's the blue bar, or Hispanic Latino, that's the, the green bar, you were more likely to have a longer sleep latency. But if we then asked... Well, not we. If the CD, when the CDC also asked, do you, how often do you have difficulty falling asleep? Now, here we're asking for a complaint. So when you ask the question that way, the, the black African-American, the Mexi Mexican-American, and other Hispanic Latino groups were less likely than white to endorse a problem. So which is it? Are they more likely to have tr more trouble falling asleep, or are they less likely? I think, I think you know, there's a lot we don't know here. Um, sleep duration, this is, this is a little better established, especially since the sleep duration questions don't tend to probe for problems, maybe. But um, this is relatively well replicated that minorities tend to be more likely to be short sleepers than um, whites. Uh, in the black group, whether you are sh you're more likely to be a short or long sleeper, and this is something that's been seen uh, a number of different times. Um, Looking, going back to that CRP data, if you actually look at, you know, so we saw that nice U-shape, but that U-shape depends uh, on race or ethnicity. So for you, we see that U-shape in the white group. Uh, in the Hispanic Latino group, there was actually no elevations in CRP in any sleep duration group. Uh, in the black or African American group, there was a short sleep effect. There was this eight-hour effect that, that was also interesting. Um, and in the Asian group, you see a totally different pattern where you see a, more of a linear effect between CRP and sleep duration. So you have very different stories here. Uh, and so when you lump all these groups together, you might get an interesting U-shape, but there's, there's more to the story. And then the question is, does this mean that CRP is a bad marker? Well, no. If anything, I would say at least we know what the limitations are. I mean, any marker that we look at, we will we may find these sorts of differences, stratifying by gender and by race. We may find these interactions. And if we don't know about them, it may just be because we haven't looked. Um, and I also want to use this, this slide from uh, Jordan Jean-Louis to show that you know, we have these categories of white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, but these are artificial categories that, are, that can be very heterogeneous. So here is a study that had white and black. And within white, you had white American and white not born in the U.S., and you had black African-American and black Caribbean-American, which are no, who are not African-American. And you see very different uh, um, differences in reporting of sleep complaints in these groups. And then there's the interaction with poverty. So here are some data collected by um, Nerev Patel in Philadelphia looking at relative to white non-poor if you, were, if you were black, you were more likely to report poor sleep. This is poor sleep on the sleep quality item from the PSQI. If you were black, you were more likely um, to report poor sleep, whether you were poor or non-poor, though there was a difference. If you were Hispanic, only if you were poor were you different from white, and white poor were different from white non-poor, and that was actually the largest effect. Um, but this, may, this pattern may be different in other parts of the country, but just shows the interaction between um, ethnicity and race.
So looking at income, here's that, that BRFSS data again, sleep overall, sleep disturbance relative to white adjusted for a number of factors. As you can see, as you earn more money relative to 75,000, sorry, it says relative to white, I mean, I meant relative to 75,000, um, you see a decreased risk of um, disturbed sleep, though you see the effect larger in women than in men. So looking at mean family income, so this was from uh, Kruger and Friedman, this, I think this was NHIS data, just showing that the, what we generally consider the healthiest sleep durations on average are also earning the most money. Um, so this was, from, again, uh, the BRFSS, BRFSS, a different year. This had over 300,000 people across all 50 states. Um, looking at income relative to days per week of reported insufficient sleep. And you can see a general downward trend, but really the effect is in, is in poverty. But what's really interesting is once you, this is unadjusted, once you throw into the model everything we could think of that, could, that the income could be buying you better health, education, um, living in a different part of the country, whatever, here's a list of all the different covariates, this is what happens. Not only do the, all the, does the elevation go away, it goes in the opposite direction. So, so that elevation is completely accounted for by these variables. So then the question is, you know, what and how and what are the interactions? But it's not, money doesn't buy you sleep, but money buys you health and, and employment and, and uh, better healthy behavior potentially. Education, while we're on the topic of SES, most studies that, that in, sleep studies that include some sort of SES variable usually in, include education. Um, Non-college educated people tend to sleep worse than college educated people. Again, this is that sleep disturbance, BRFSS uh, question. Um, relative to employed, odds ratio relative to employed. So you could see employed people generally slept the best. Um, People who are unemployed and, and disabled tend to sleep worse. The one that was really interesting to me is the homemaker category, where the women who are homemakers tended to have levels similar to self-employed, where the men looked more like they were unemployed, though that may be deciding, well, who is a homemaker? Who, you know, who's responding to that question? And what's interesting, when you look at race interactions, there was a significant uh, race interaction here where if you were black and a male, that elevation was significantly lower in that group uh, who, if you were a homemaker. So it's kind of in, these interesting social patterns here. Um, so here's some national data from that, that same data set of over 300,000 people across the U.S. When you look by county, looking at potential hotspots. So, so the, the effect of geography. You know, we've, got our, we've got the stroke belt and maybe now the stroke buckle and the, and the, and the obesity belt. And you know, so you know, it's interesting how you know, insufficient sleep tends to map onto that. So... And you know, so what, what could that mean? Well, neighborhood factors. Well, living in an inner city makes you more likely to be a short sleeper. Um, bad neighborhoods are, are associated with worse health. And what's interesting is uh, the relationship between being in an unhealthy neighborhood and having worse uh, overall health and mental health are both partially mediated by sleep quality. So, so there's data showing that from uh, Hale, Lauren Hale, and colleagues. So kind of trying to wrap this up, um, so we're thinking about, so, so do disparities exist? It looks like you know, experience, sleep disparities uh, do seem to exist in the population. There's still a lot to know about how these are distributed and how they work um, and where uh, they could be playing a role. And do they play a role in health disparities? 
There's very little data on this. Um, there's, there was a paper by uh, Kristen Knudsen a few years ago looking at how uh, racial differences in hypertension was mediated by short sleep. But there's still, you know, there's, there's a lot we need to learn about this. And when we're thinking about the pathway towards adverse health and disparities, where does sleep belong? Is, is sleep a moderator? Is it a mediator? Does, do, do social environmental factors lead to worse sleep, which is a third variable in the relationship and not necessarily related? That seems implausible since so many physiologic processes are related to sleep. Um, so where does sleep belong? And then, you know, what about here? Talking about the lifespan. You know, does poor sleep, do sleep issues here set off a different trajectory? I mean, these are all really important questions. So I'm um, trying to wrap this up as quickly as possible. I know we're behind. A lot of people to, to thank for this work and lots of other work, mentors and collaborators at Penn and, and other places and lots of students that have helped out. And, of course, the funders have, um, without which I wouldn't be here. And, of course, uh, the organizers for inviting me. I'm honored to share the stage with, with uh, others who have given such great talks. So thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.